Welcome back everyone. This is Dr. Kara, aka The Crunchy Allergist. I am a board certified allergy, immunology, and lifestyle medicine physician, Stemex Sjogren's patient, certified life coach, busy mama three. I'm a lot of things. But today I am your teacher for the fourth chapter of Immunology 101. Today we are going to talk all about misbehaving immune systems. We are going to dig into what the similarities and differences are between allergies and autoimmunity. The next week we will dig into how do immune deficiency and cancer come into this conversation as well. We're going to compare and contrast these along the way, all in an effort for you to feel more empowered with this education so you know what is going on with your body and what is going wrong when you may be suffering from one or multiple of these conditions. The truly obnoxious thing about our immune systems is that misbehaving immune systems have a tendency to misbehave in multiple different ways. Having one of these conditions may increase the risk of developing subsequent ones. If you were an autoimmune patient, you probably have heard that the chances of developing another autoimmune condition is relatively significant. But what we also know is, for instance, if someone has an immune deficiency, that they are more likely to develop autoimmunity and potentially certain cancers depending on their specific immune deficiency. All of this comes back to the role of immune dysregulation. So let's dig in. We're initially gonna start with allergy. Allergy is something that I deal with in the office every single day. It is our immune system recognizing something that should be benign, something like a little grain of pollen, a peanut, or penicillin as a danger signal. This is inappropriate, right? Our immune system should see these relative benign things that are part of our environment and ignore it. But instead, it is pulling out all the stops to create a significant inflammatory response. It's a particular flavor of inflammatory response, which we'll talk about. This is what we now call allergy. So I always like to tell my patients who are dealing with allergies that when we were cave people back thousands of years ago, that we actually didn't have allergies really to speak of. Allergy is a relatively modern problem. And the responses that we categorize as allergic responses are from a part of our immune system that is responsible for helping us fight off parasite infections. Cells that we typically will call allergy cells, which are called mast cells and eosinophils, and sometimes basophils as well, these cells are responsible for helping recognize and respond to things like intestinal worms. Now, thankfully, vast majority of us, especially most of us listening to this podcast, are not exposed or infected by these intestinal worms or similar bugs anymore. 
I think we can all agree that's probably a good thing. But we still have the machinery in place to help us respond to those should we encounter them. What happens when our immune system responds or is hypersensitive to these substances is that we will then develop particular symptoms related to the activation of those cells. If you think about an intestinal worm, it's relatively big compared to the size of a white blood cell. Those white blood cells that would have been responsible for gobbling up a bacteria or for killing a cell infected with virus inside of it, those tools are not adequate to respond to a worm. Instead, the body has these particular tools in their tool belt, mast cells, eosinophils, basophils, and IgE antibody, which we didn't talk about last week. These in particular are all really helpful tools at identifying and responding to things like intestinal worms. Mast cells, or white blood cells that contain preformed little packets of substances like histamine, tryptase, and a hundred other different chemicals that when released and triggered result in significant inflammation in the area that they trigger. If they trigger in your gut, they may cause you to throw up or have significant diarrhea. If you think about intestinal worms, that may help you purge those from your system. Or if they were to respond in your lungs, there are certain worm infections that would infect your lungs, create more mucus, coughing, and bronchospasm, or the um, spasming of the muscles around your windpipe and your breathing tubes. These are symptoms that we would see and recognize in certain contexts as a food allergy reaction or an asthma flare-up or attack. When things like these mast cells become activated in our skin, that's what results in hives and swelling. So red, itchy, swollen, mucus production, all of these are signs and symptoms of this type of inflammatory response. We're gonna dig into this a little bit further. Typically, we will call this type of reaction an immediate hypersensitivity. Immediate hypersensitivity is when we have an IgE antibody and mast cell related reaction. So what happens? The immune system, for some reason, will recognize and respond to initially to maybe exposure to a peanut protein. Instead of developing tolerance to that peanut protein, for some reason, maybe there's some genetic predisposition, maybe some changes in the microbiome, some other factors going on, the immune system will, instead of making signals for tolerance, will instead do that matchmaking procedure and create an IgE antibody. 
Remember, antibodies are those Y-shaped molecules where if we're doing our YMCA hold, the hands are where that's going to bind to that little piece of peanut protein that it responds to. And then the feet are going to be anchored on mast cells throughout the body. This IgE antibody is going to act as a receptor on those mast cells. Now, there are other lots of other receptors on the surface of these mast cells. This is not the only way that these mast cells can be triggered or cause them to rupture, but this is one way that it can pretty immediately result in people having significant mast cell, we call it degranulation or triggering in someone's body. This same process is this going to occur in folks that have pollen allergies or medication allergies. The body inappropriately recognizes that protein, we call it an antigen in that case, it breaks it down into little pieces. Those little pieces are processed. It goes through the matchmaking process and instead of developing tolerance, it develops this hypersensitive type response which results in the development of these IgE antibodies. So when we think about allergy running in families, it's very common, but the actual specific type of allergy that we have does not necessarily get passed along. Someone may have a family member who has pollen allergies to tree pollens, and another family member is allergic to dust mites, or another has peanut allergy the specifics are not passed along. Those develop within the individual. There are specific chemical messengers that are related in the development and the propagation of these immediate hypersensitivity reactions. We call this a TH2 response. It's one of the terms that you will hear in literature and reading up on this. And interleukin-4 is one of the main cytokines that is responsible for this type of response. There are many other cytokines that are involved. And the other thing that will happen after the initial immediate reaction, those mast cells degranulate, they release their histamine and their tryptase and all these other chemicals. They create the itch, the mucus, the swelling, so on and so forth. But there also is something called a late phase reaction. There is another series of events that gets turned on within the cell machinery that results in the creation of additional factors, creation of additional cytokines and other chemical messengers that then propagate this response. That's why about one in five individuals will have a second wave of symptoms maybe four to six hours after their initial allergic reaction. What's interesting is what we've realized is if someone has a food reaction, using epinephrine, injectable epinephrine or an EpiPen is the first line treatment and really the the main treatment for a food allergy response. Using that sooner is going to decrease the risk of that secondary reaction. You're turning off that machinery before it's able to fully be turned on.
So there's one other chemical messenger and cell type that I would like to at least mention within the allergy portion of our discussion, which is interleukin-5 and eosinophils. Eosinophils are another type of allergy cell. They're a little bit like kamikaze cells, and they are associated with certain flavors of asthma, a condition called eosinophilic esophagitis, which we'll have a future episode on both of these conditions. But they are essentially produced, and IL-5 is like fertilizer to these particular cells. The reason I want to bring that up is that that is a target for some of the newer treatments that are coming out, in particular for asthma, and to some degree, eosinophilic esophagitis as well. I think that's just important to lay the groundwork for some of the discussions we'll have in the coming weeks with between myself and some of my colleagues on some of these allergic conditions. All right, we're gonna switch gears a little bit now and move on to autoimmunity. Autoimmunity is the immune system failing to recognize our own tissues is safe. It's a failure of tolerance. Immune system tolerance is our ability to be unresponsive to our own self-antigens. So we ignore the self, especially when the self is healthy. We don't want our body responding and creating this huge inflammatory to-do about something that should be there that is functioning within our system. If these mechanisms fail, that is then deemed autoimmunity. They can fail in a whole multitude of different ways. The tolerance process though takes on a whole nother light when we think about how the immune system also has to coexist with all of the microbes that live in and on us. We also have to maintain tolerance to carry a pregnancy. We have to consider how this changes in the situation of someone perhaps having a transplant. So let's jump into how tolerance occurs. There are two places that tolerance can occur centrally, which would be in the thymus and bone marrow and peripheral tolerance. Thinking about some of the mechanisms of central tolerance, we have the death of immature T cells and the generation of a specific type of T cells called CD4 regulatory T cells. This initial process that I mentioned, death of immature T cells, is a process called negative selection. This is a major mechanism of the central tolerance. When we are developing in utero and during our early childhood years, the immune system is going under a rapid time of development. During that time, the immune system is processing, breaking down some of our own cells, displaying those little bits of protein or peptides, and they are undergoing kind of that matchmaking process using that major histocompatibility complex, that MHC, that we talked about with T cells. It gets quite specific, but 
there is a process where the immune system is able to tell what is self, what is not self, and how, and how strongly those interactions occur. If an immature T cell is specific for a self-antigen, that immature T cell will be taken out. This is negative selection. That immature T cell that is specific for self-antigen may also interact and develop a regulatory T cell. That is a tolerance-promoting T cell. There's two ways that is occurring. As we are developing, there is a really cool process that goes on inside of our thymus. Our thymus is an organ that lies in our chest. It starts off quite large as babies and it will shrink and become much smaller to virtually non-existent as we become adults. There's a protein that is expressed in this tissue called AIR, autoimmune regulator. This particular protein will express a whole multitude of all the different tissue antigens in our body. It's like a little smorgasbord, the rest of our body that is being produced within the thymus and our immune system is going through and eliminating some of those self-reactive T cells and developing those T regs. Unfortunately, some people may have a mutation in this air gene and that will result in something called autoimmune polyendocrine syndrome. These individuals will over time develop multiple severe autoimmune conditions, things like type one diabetes, thyroid, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and many other conditions as well because their bodies have been unable to create a zone of tolerance for their own proteins and cells. Central tolerance is great, but some of these self-reactive lymphocytes will mature and will be present in individuals. There are mechanisms for these to be dealt with within the periphery, outside of the thymus, outside of the bone marrow, and kind of those different areas. Peripheral tolerance is induced when these mature T cells will recognize self-antigens and over time, they will lead to a functional inactivation. This is called anergy, when self-reactive lymphocytes are suppressed by those regulatory T cells. So how does anergy work? Anergy, or turning off these self-reactive cells, occurs when there's an antigen recognition, there's that self-recognition, but there's not enough co-stimulation between those two cells. There's not enough of that extra juice to say, oh, this is an infection or this is something that is foreign. That will make the T cell then essentially be turned off. Or it may make the T cell sensitive to suppression by those T regulatory cells. The reality is that immune responses are influenced by a balance between engagement of activating and inhibitory receptors. The pendulum can swing one way or the other, turn on or turn off those immune responses. There are particular cofactors that may downregulate reactions. 
or inflammation. CTLA-4 is one receptor that tends to be inhibitory, and PD-1, which we talked about last week as well. These are considered checkpoint inhibitors, and you will hear about some of the treatments that are considered checkpoint inhibitors in discussions of treatment of cancers in particular, and many of these are directed towards PD-1 and CTLA-4. Now, how about these T regulatory cells? T regulatory cells are dependent on their own cytokine. We talked earlier about how eosinophils and IL-5 go together. There are certain associations between some of these cytokines in particular cell types, and T regulatory cells are dependent on the cytokine interleukin-2. In mice that develop or that are bred with problems in their IL-2 or their IL-2 receptor genes, what you'll see develop is severe autoimmune disease. IL-2 is a cytokine that serves two opposite roles. It promotes immune responses by stimulating T cell proliferation. It inhibits immune responses by maintaining functional regulatory T cells. This is another target that is really being looked at in clinical trials to be used in treatments of autoimmune diseases and transplant rejection. Another cytokine that will come up repeatedly when we're discussing regulatory T-cells is TGF-beta, transforming growth factor beta. This also plays a role in the generation and production of these regulatory T-cells. We think it's by stimulating expression of a particular transcription factor within our cell nuclei called FOXP3. We primarily have discussed how this shows up in T cells, but I want you to know that this also occurs within our B cells as well. B cells, again, have antibodies. There's this similar process of self versus non-self eliminating, ideally, that is seen as recognizing self. I want to spend just a minute on talking about the genetic factors that play into the development of autoimmune disease. In part, we see inherited risk for most autoimmune diseases is attributable to genes that code for these MHCs. MHC is, again, these structures that will recognize antigens, and we have a particular combination of MHC that we produce. These are in part related to if someone is undergoing the process of possibly donating an organ or doing a bone marrow transplant or maybe being considered a bone marrow donor, they're going to run something called your HLA types. Our HLAs are alleles or types of genes that we will carry, flavors of genes that we will carry that code for our MHC molecules. There are particular HLA types that we know are associated with particular autoimmune diseases. HLA-B27 associated with ankylosing spondylitis. 
There are particular HLAs that are associated with type 1 diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, and these, to various degrees, increase the relative risk of someone developing that particular autoimmune disease. Having some of these particular patterns inherently part of your code can increase the risk that you may have these autoimmune conditions. We also know that is not the end-all be-all. There are other factors that result in the loss of tolerance over time. This may include exposure to particular infections, other stressors on the body, and there are particular gene defects that we know, such as I mentioned with the air gene, that are also implicated as well. I'd like to spend a minute just talking about how infections can result in a breakdown of tolerance. So as we know, infection in a tissue induces innate immune responses that results in an increased production of these co-stimulators, cytokines by the tissue, antigen-presenting cells like the dendritic cells. Those antigen-presenting cells may be able to stimulate those self-reactive T cells that are then going to encounter self-antigens from the damaged tissue. So infection may break T cell tolerance and promote activation of these self-reactive lymphocytes. These tend to occur in people who are already genetically at risk for developing autoimmunity. There also is something called molecular mimicry. Some infectious microbes produce peptide antigens that are similar to and cross-react with our own antigens. As our immune system is producing a response to the microbes, our own tissues essentially get caught in the crossfire because they look the same. For instance, in rheumatic fever, which occurs with strep infection and occurred quite commonly before we had penicillin, we knew that streptococci bacteria cross-react with a myocardial or heart antigen and then can cause heart disease. Infections also may alter the chemical structure of our self-antigens. An example is that some bacterial infections in our mouth and teeth are associated with rheumatoid arthritis. So it's postulated that inflammatory responses to these particular bacteria lead to a conversion of some of these self-proteins. It'll change some of the structures to them. And these proteins then are recognized as non-self and immune responses develop as a result. Infections also injure tissues and release antigens that normally would be kept away from the immune system. For instance, the eyes and testicles and ovaries, those are all areas that should be kept away from the immune system and most often ignored. But if you have trauma or infection that end up in these areas, that could initiate an autoimmune reaction against these tissues because the immune system has not had a chance or needed to develop tolerance to them. We also are really realizing the role of the microbiome in 
this process as well. So the bugs that live in and on us outnumber our own cells. They also are influencing the health of our immune system and helping us maintain self-tolerance. This is an area that has a great deal of interest personally, but also globally. There is really an increased interest in determining what are normal variations in the microbiome of humans. How does diet alter the types and quantities of particular microbes? And how does that then lead to the development and influence the development of particular autoimmune diseases? We have talked about how allergies are the immune system's inappropriate response to the external environment and seeing that as a danger signal. Autoimmunity is the immune system's response to our own tissues and a failure to see our own tissues is safe. Next week, we are going to tackle immune deficiency and cancer. Immune deficiency is an inability to either recognize or respond appropriately to something that is actually dangerous. And cancer tumors are in part caused by the immune system's inability to recognize when our own cells have gone rogue. So I look forward to bringing you all of that information next week. In the meantime, I hope you have an incredible week. If you like what you're hearing so far and you think others would benefit from hearing it too, it would be amazing if you would take a few minutes to rate and review the Crunchy Allergist podcast. Ratings and reviews are the best way to make podcasts discoverable. I would love it if you'd give me your honest opinion, and of course, a five-star review would be great. If you click the subscribe button, you will automatically receive weekly episodes without needing to do anything else. And if you feel called to share with your friends or family, I would be so grateful. If you'd like to learn more about how we can work together, head over to drkarawada.com.